You know, please be opening your Bibles this morning. We'll be looking at Matthew eighteen fifteen through 20. We're going to be looking back a little bit more than usual though. So have them ready to flip. For the past two weeks we've employed um, the microscope approach to exegesis. Uh, we've looked closely at each phrase and each word to make sure we felt the full force of those five imperatives on church discipline. That we must go to any brother that's in sin and show him his fault. We've got to do the work to be able to show him that he is indeed in sin. And if he doesn't listen, then we've got, we're not done. We've got to take. That's the third imperative. You've got to take one or two more with you to investigate the matter as thoroughly as possible while keeping it as private as possible. To make sure, hey, we need, we're understanding this rightly. We're going to call him to repentance if he is indeed wrong. But if the brother refuses to listen to this group of concerned brothers who all believe him to be in sin, then his obstinance, we have to, because of that, take it and tell it to the whole church. Fourth imperative. It's no longer a private matter, but you've got to tell everybody about it. Calling, let him feel the full force of the whole community of faith calling him to repentance. And if he refuses to listen, if this so-called brother is so prideful, so arrogant and obstinate that he refuses to listen even to the church, it says then you let him be, last imperative, you shun him. You let him be no longer as a brother, but as a Gentile and even a traitorous tax collector. But verses 18 through 20 require us to back up and pull the telescope out once again. Because if we forget the greater historical and literary context of... Uh, the, uh, you know, of these verses, we, we risk missing the point. After this imperative rich 15 through 17, there's not a single command in 18 through 20. Jesus is no longer telling the disciples what to do. He's telling them what will happen when they obey the commands in the preceding verses. If we forget the greater historical and literary context of these verses, we have zero chance of understanding the encouraging words that Jesus is sharing concerning his church. Before we look at our text for this morning, we have to clear up a common misunderstanding related to the words church and synagogue. We think they're completely different things, don't we? When we think you've got the church and you've got the synagogue. Well, that's not exactly right. The terms synagogue and ecclesia are related and even interchangeable words in the Scriptures. Both are simply assemblies of people. The New Testament uses both of these words to refer to religious gatherings of non-Jewish Christians, of non-Jewish, non-Jewish Christians and of Jewish Christians and of non-Christian Jews. That uses them both interchangeably. The New, the, the um, over time, synagogue became more associated with Judaism and church became more associated with Christianity. But if we carry that later developed oversimplification into many New Testament texts, then we risk missing the point. But there's actually a pretty good reason why we no longer view the terms as synonyms. In the Greek Old Testament, ecclesia referred to the assembly of the people of God. 
It was national Israel, the national community of Israel. But of course, the former glory of the Old Testament Israel was no more, was it, by the time that we're in the New Testament? They had been conquered and were under the power of the pagan Roman government. With the subjugation of the nation came a change in the pious Jews' understanding of the ecclesia, of the, of the, of the assembly of the people of God. Who is the people of God? And the Pharisees rightly understood that they were a conquered nation because it was judgment from God and that God would only restore the kingdom to Israel if they kept His law. They cited Exodus 19, 5-7. If you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be to me my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Then you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These pious Jews formed a separate group within the larger community. That's literally what the word Pharisee means. When we hear Pharisee, the Pharisees were a separate group. Like, not all people who were born of Abraham are actually Israel because if they don't observe the law, they're not part of the ecclesia of God, the true people of God. So we're a separate people that are going to call everyone back to the law of God. The Pharisees rejected that physical lineage from Abraham alone, guaranteed the benefits of the kingdom of God because of that big if. If you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you'll be my own possession among the peoples. You'll be to me this kingdom of priests and this holy nation. So they were the self-appointed gatekeepers of the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees typically used the synonymous term synagogue instead of ecclesia to differentiate them from the larger ecclesia or the larger national community of Israel. That's actually what synagogue means. It means an assembly of Jews, a place of assembly. It's synonymous, exactly the same thing. Ecclesia is an assembly of people. Synagogue is an assembly of people. But they're pointing out that we are the synagogue, an assembly amongst the larger assembly, the true people of God amongst the so-called national Israel. In their minds, they were bringing together those who were truly a part of the community of Israel from amongst the greater ethnic community. Those who were truly God's people observed the law. So the synagogue leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders spent their time debating acceptable belief and practice within the synagogue. That's what they did. What is binding on your conscience and what is not binding on your conscience? What, what are they obligated to believe and to do? What are they free to believe and to do? They discussed the way of life that they believed would lead to them being reestablished as a kingdom on the earth. That They discussed the law of God, this system of binding and loosing, and over time it formed what we know as the tradition of the elders. A synonym for that is... The ha- 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 I forgot how uh, Jerry said it. Jerry's not here, so I can't make fun of him anyway. The halakha. Uh, the, the halakha, which it means the path or the way. This is the path. This is the way to bring back in the covenant promises of God on the people. That if we finally create this culture, if we finally live out this law, then... God will respond to our righteous culture that we've created and He'll send His Messiah and He'll overthrow Rome and we will once again be this superpower on the earth. That's what they wanted. 
They exercised, to do this, they exercised the ministry of the keys. If a Jewish man refused to observe the halakha, then they were excluded. They were locked out of the assembly. They were cut off from the community of faith because they couldn't risk not creating that because then the Messiah would never come. When we understand the historical context, we see the boldness of Jesus' response to Peter's great confession. Remember when Jesus asked, Who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter answered boldly, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You've already come. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but our Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. I'll build my national community, my new people of God. I'll build it on your testimony. as one of my apostles. Apostles. And... When I do, the gates of hell will not overpower this church. And I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That you'll create this. Whatever you bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. Whatever you loosed on earth shall be what was loosed in heaven. Jesus was telling Peter that by opening the eyes of the disciples to his identity as Messiah, God was making them the foundation of this new ecclesia. Jesus' own assembly. And he assures them that unlike the Pharisee synagogue... The church that he builds will overpower the gates of hell. Unlike the Pharisee synagogue, they'll unlock the blessing of the kingdom as they retain and remove people from the community. Unlike the Pharisee synagogue, they'll rightly bind and loose consciences. It hits different when you read it with that understanding, that background into which Jesus is speaking this, doesn't it? It hits differently. Then in 16... 20 through 1727, all of that is written to anticipate the passing away of the old covenant community. I was tempted to preach it all again. I'm not going to do that. I'll spare you. Go back and listen if you weren't around. And then in chapter 18, it anticipates the establishment of this new community and explains how it'll function. The kingdom will be filled with converted men who are given the humble hearts that assume the lowest of ranks like little children. These humble-hearted kingdom citizens will receive one another, avoiding being stumbling blocks as they elevate their fellow little ones with respect and honor and value highly uh, one another, pursuing one another when they go astray. And then Jesus returns to the same language that he used in his response to Peter's great confession. And that's where we are here in Matthew 18, 15-20. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two more with you, so that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst." Today, we're going to look at how the church is superior to the Jewish synagogue. How that they have superior shunning. They have superior statutes. They have superior supplications that will actually be answered. And they have a superior, ultimately a superior synagogue, a superior gathering of people. That's what we're seeing here in this text. So beginning here with this superior shunning. As we've already seen in this explanation on the front end, 
Church discipline wasn't some novel idea that Jesus invented out of nowhere. The Jewish synagogue or the Jewish ecclesia, the Jewish church, you can use them as synonyms. They're the same thing. The Jewish community of faith that hadn't accepted Jesus as the Messiah, they shunned obstinate members as well. This practice was a huge part of Jewish synagogue culture. Their word for this shunning was apo-synagogos. Or away from, literally, apo, like where we get the word apostasy, that somebody's left the faith, someone out of or from out of the gathering or the assembly. They're kicked out of, they're put out of the assembly. That's apo-synagogos. The Jewish application of this was grave and severe. Besides the temple, the synagogues were the primary and regular place of religious gathering and fellowship in religious communities, in the Jewish community. It meant that you were outside of the community without contact with God's people. You're cut off. All the people that you've formerly associated with, we don't talk to you anymore and they don't either. Furthermore, because it involved exclusion from the Jewish sacred assemblies, it automatically entailed a loss of access to the ritual sacrifices associated with forgiveness and acceptance. At the time of Christ, removal from the synagogue also was permanent. Apo synagogos, you're out, you don't come back in. The idea was that you had, you had committed a crime that was worthy of death in the Old Testament. If, if this was Old Testament times, for them to put you out, they're saying, if you would have done this in Old Testament times, we wouldn't have to put you out of the community because we would purge that evil from our midst by killing you. So in essence, you're dead to us. We lack, they lack the authority to actually put anybody to death in the Jewish community. Only Rome could do that. So this was as close as they could get. So you're not literally going to be ex- executed, but we will excommunicate you. We'll put you out of our community altogether. You were counted as accursed, as anathema, as dead to the synagogue community. This is from the Jewish Encyclopedia. The highest ecclesiastical censure, the exclusion of a person from the religious community, which among the Jews meant a practical prohibition of all intercourse within society. See anathema, see ban. Its object was to preserve the solidarity of the nation and strengthen the authority of the synagogue by enforcing obedience. And it worked. Oh, it worked. People submitted to the synagogue community. The Jewish people were terrified of being put out of the synagogue. We see it mentioned by name a few times, particularly in John's Gospel. And we see it play itself out a few other times in Scripture. After Jesus healed a blind man, the, uh, the blind man's parents refused to tell that it was Jesus who performed the healing. You know why? John 9:22 His parents said his parents said we don't know how he how he was healed and they said that it says because they were afraid of the Jews for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ then they would be apostolos so even though they knew that Jesus had healed him they wouldn't say it because they were terrified they wouldn't even say the truth because they were scared of the sanctions of the synagogue community of being put out of the community of faith Their fear of being put out of the synagogue synagogue led to them dodging this question and putting their own son at risk. Verse 23, they said, For this reason, his parents said, He's of age, ask him. They preferred having to shun their own son to them risking themselves being put out of the community. That's how severe it was. We'll let him answer this wrong. He might get put out, but at least we'll still be connected to the community of faith. Again, in John 
12, 42 through 43, it tells us that even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. Why? For fear, once again, that they would be put out of the synagogue. For fear of aposunagogos. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Again, notice the fear aspect. If sanctions aren't severe, then they aren't effective. Do you know that? If your punishment isn't severe, it won't be effective. The Jewish community understood that. Their, their implementation of church synagogue discipline was severe because they knew if it was severe, it'd work. A lot of you don't know why your kids won't, beha- won't obey you. It's because you say, don't do that, don't do that, I'll spank you, I'll spank you. Okay, you got it now. That's why it doesn't work, by the way. Sanctions have to be severe, and they have to actually fear it before it'll work. And this was severe, and it was effective. Putting people out of the synagogue was designed to prevent ungodly practices and views from infiltrating the community. But the leaders used it as a blunt force intimidation factor. They hated Jesus because he questioned their tradition, so they used the threat of aposynagogos. They used the threat of putting people out of the synagogue to keep people from following this rival that they saw Jesus as. That's how the ministry of the keys worked. Those who are in power get access to those that they want in, and they refuse access to those that they want out in order to maintain power. And such can be done on principles of righteousness, or principles of unrighteousness. If you've got something people want in, they'll do what you say to get to get in or stay in because of the threat of being put out. And you can, it can be good things or bad things. That keep you, you know, A lot of places, if you won't bend your knee to the LGBTQ, LMNOP agenda, then they'll put you out of their place of business. That's the ministry of the keys. It gets used unrighteously, but it's still used, isn't it? can be fine for standing up against things you should stand up against and be forced to stand up for things that you shouldn't stand up for if you want to stay in these communities. That's the ministry of the keys. The synagogue exercised those keys very effectively in the Jewish community. Um, those, uh, such, uh, those who want inclusion in the community bend to the demands of those who are in power in the community. Jesus warned the disciples that the same thing would happen to them if they embraced him as the Messiah. But they told them not to worry about it. Jesus told them not to worry about it. In John 16.2, he, he warns them that they will put you out of the synagogue. But an hour, and an hour is coming for that anyone who even kills you will think he is offering ser- service to God. But he told them they shouldn't worry because it doesn't matter if they kick you out of the synagogue because Matthew 21, 43 through 45, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from them and given to the church. It's going to be taken away from the synagogue community and given to the church. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. They knew Jesus was saying he's going to do away with the synagogue system and implement a a, a new community. That's part of why they killed him. Still didn't stop him though, did it? So with the granting of the kingdom and the establishment of Jesus' ecclesia came a change in the ministry of the keys and a change in who would do the binding and loosing. Notice it isn't the abolition of the ministry of the keys or the abolition of the ministry of binding and loosing, but it's a change of who does it. 
Jesus doesn't reject putting people out of the community of faith. He simply reassigns the authority to do so. Jesus takes the authority away from the synagogue and he gives it to the church. That's what this is all about. Jesus gives the keys to his church, his ecclesia, his synagogue. Look with me again at Jesus' response to Peter's great confession in Matthew 16, 18. What did he tell the disciples, particularly Peter? Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I'll give you the authority to bring people in and to put people out. I'll give it to you, the church. My church will have this authority. They had it now. I'll give it to you. And whatever you bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of Matthew 16, verse 19, is the same thing as Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Look back to our text. He doesn't repeat the idea of I'll give you the keys to the kingdom, but he tells us how it looks when they're actually used. And that's where you get your section on church discipline. If your brother sins... Here's how it's to happen righteously. If your brother sins, then that's when you... This is the ministry of the keys. You go to him in private and show him his sin. If he won't hear you, then you take one or two with you so that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. And if he refuses to hear them, then you tell it to the entire church. And if he refuses to hear the church, then you let him be to you as someone who's out of the community. It goes from predicting that or telling them, promising them, they'll give them the keys, to in 18, telling them how that will function. 1619 mentions the net mechanism, the ministry of the keys. 18, 15 through 17 explains how it is to be carried out. So... The synagogue community weaponized the ministry of the keys in in order to control people. The chief priests, Pharisees, and rulers determined the rules, and the people, the assembly themselves, either did what they were told or they suffered the consequences. Jesus leveled the playing field. All of his disciples are of the same rank and status. Every one of us. There's no greatest in the kingdom of heaven... They all took the rank of little child. They who received the least little one received Christ. They who cause offense to the least little one, it's better than a millstone, be hanged about his neck and he drowned in the depths of the the sea. They who despise, think little of, look down on, think lightly of, disregard, even one of these little ones will incur the wrath of the Father and the little one's angels who behold his face, the Father's face. The point is that there's no big eyes and little U's in the kingdom. You don't have the elite Pharisees, the elite scribes, the elite elders who get to make the rules for everybody else, the elite rabbis, and everybody else just does what they're said. Every member is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And who is discipline done by in Jesus' church instead of in the Jewish synagogue? Who's it done by? The church. The, the, The church itself. It's not just a top-down authoritative structure because who's the head of the church? Jesus. And all the members are indwelled by the Spirit and you hear the collective church. It is a superior shunning. It is a shunning that's done on principles of righteousness, not blunt forth intimidation from the top down. Everyone has a voice. And the sinning brother is to hear the call of the church itself, not some ruling faction at the top of the community. Jesus is the head of the church and we're all brothers. Furthermore, the shunning within the church is superior because it's restorative, isn't it? In the Jewish community, 
being aposynagogos, being put out, was permanent. It was punitive. But in the church, it's restorative. We put you out in order with a desire to bring you back. And that's where it goes right after this section that we're handling today. In Matthew 18, 21 through 22, Peter comes and says, How often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, No, I don't say to you forgive him seven times, but seventy times seven. It's restorative. It's reversible. Forgiveness is always there. While there's breath in the lungs of the people... We want them back and we call them back and we receive them back when they come in humility and and repentance. The church is not the ministry of the sword but the ministry of grace and even excommunication is a gracious restorative ministry. But not only does Jesus point to superior shunning but He points to superior statutes. Look at verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Once again, just like church discipline, the concept of binding and loosing wasn't some novel idea that Jesus invented out of nowhere. The language was rooted in the Jewish synagogue's corrupt written tradition. It's what they said they were doing in the tradition of the elders. It's what they said they were doing in the Holocaust. The phrase binding and loosing is used in rabbinic literature for declaring what is and what isn't permitted in the covenant community. Binding and loosing were the self-described jobs of the scribes and Pharisees. They claimed that their tradition of the elders was the right interpretation of God's law. They called it the halakah, the path or the way. They claimed that if people would walk in that path, that God would renew His covenant with Israel. They claimed that this halakah was the key to unlocking the blessings promised in Exodus 19, 5-7. If you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you'll be a possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Jesus' problem with the Pharisees wasn't the practice of binding and loosing. It wasn't that they cared about keeping law. Guys, the law is good. He agreed with them that the Mosaic covenant was a conditional covenant and that the law must be kept. Jesus' problem with them was how poorly they did when it came to binding and loosing. It wasn't the practice, it was the execution that Jesus had a problem with. And much of Matthew's gospel is examples of Jesus correcting the tradition of the elders, the customs of his day. They believed men were bound to pay the temple tax. We just work backwards through the text. And Jesus said that the sons of the kingdom were actually exempt. They said they were bound. Jesus said they were loosed. The Pharisees believed that washing one's hands before eating was binding on conscience. Jesus said, no, it's not. It's not that which goes into a man, but that which comes out that defiles a man. It's not binding on conscience. They believed a man was loosed from his obligation to provide for his parents in their old age as long as he promised to give his money to the temple when he died. And Jesus said, that's crazy talk. You can't do that. No, you're bound to take care of your parents. You don't get to forfeit the responsibility to honor your father and mother. Your tradition's wicked. They invalidated. Jesus even said, you invalidate the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. He says of them that they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far away from Him, that in vain they worshipped Him, teaching as doctrines the mere precepts of men. You're binding and loosing, but you're missing it completely. That's what Jesus is saying. You're, You're not going back to the intention of the law of God. You're inventing a perverted standard that just appeals to your own lusts and your own desires. You want the money of these people. You won't let them take care of their parents in their own age because you want the money donated to the temple, you greedy people. 
They said the disciples were bound from picking heads of grain on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, no, they're not. They're more than free to pick heads of grain on the Sabbath as we pass through. That's not working on the Sabbath, on the Lord's day. That's not, that's not working. And they thought that Jesus was bound from healing on the Sabbath. He had healed a, a, withered man, a, a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. And they said, you can't do that. It's, it's not lawful for you to heal somebody on the Sabbath. And he said, shoot, you get a sheep out of a ditch on the Sabbath. And is a man not more valuable than a sheep? You're, you, you care more about assets than you do about people? Back to that concept. You're binding and you're loosing wrongly. They thought that they were free to conspire to kill Jesus for his good deed that he did. They excused their own spirit of rivalry, even to the point of murdering Jesus because he contradicted their tradition. They thought that was fine, obviously. We could go on and on. But the point is that the statutes were corrupt. But Jesus, and Jesus was correcting them and establishing a community that would observe all things whatsoever he commanded. He would call them back as their new covenant head to the true teachings of God. Jesus' church would situationally apply God's law. Truly, I say to you, that once, once this happens, you see somebody in sin and you all investigate it thoroughly and you consider everything. And it's not just, hey, this is a hard and fast rule and we apply it the same every time without consideration of all of the things that go into it. That when it's brought before, when you investigate it thoroughly, the church will be able to decide, hey, these are real people in real time and sometimes what's right in this situation might be different over here. That, it, that, that things change depending on situations of what's right and wrong sometimes when you've got all the factors. And whatever that the church binds will be what was bound in heaven. Whatever the church looses will be what was loosed in heaven. They'll be guided by the Holy Spirit of God to do it in principles of righteousness. When the church does discipline, it'll be done rightly. Looking back at the Sermon on the Mount is instructive. It begins with Jesus seeing the multitudes and going up on a mountain and sitting down with the twelve disciples, which represents the twelve tribes of Israel. And... He, and he, that he is establishing a new community, a new ecclesia. And right out of the gate, Jesus establishes this kingdom of ethic. Remember when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they uh, the, the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. And he goes on to explicitly deny the righteousness of the tradition of the elders. Remember that? In Matthew 5, 17-20, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. For truly I say to you that until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. If you follow the halakah, the way, the path, what they've bound and loosed, you'll never get to the kingdom because they've twisted it altogether. You've got to realize you're nowhere near. You've got to be poor of spirit and realize you're spiritually destitute before you even have a chance of getting in. If you're trying to get in through walking this path on your own, you're destined to never see it. And then he follows that up by giving six examples of how the tradition of the elders corrupts the law of God in verses 20 through 48. That the, they were binding where they should have loosed and loose where they should have bound. In 5, 20 through 28, he says that 
You've heard it said of old, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, whoever hates his brother without a cause is guilty of murder. And he corrects their understanding of adultery. You shall not commit adultery. If you even look with lust, you've committed adultery. Of their divorce laws, of their deceit and vow regulations, of their revenge, of their ill will toward their enemies. All of these things were things written in the halakha that he says are messed up and wrong. Where the written tradition of the elders got it all wrong, the church would look at real-life details of each situation and apply the whole counsel of God in righteousness, neither over nor under binding the conscience. When prayerfully thought, God would guide His church in His truth by His Spirit. Guys, that's good news, isn't it? That's what we should be doing. It's not just a social club where we get together and navel gaze and sing kumbaya and I'm glad I'm forgiven. That we actually are to create culture and think about how do we please God and, and grow in righteousness and corporate sanctification. That what the synagogue was trying to do, the church should be doing corporately together as we wrestle through the scriptures. And that we'll get it right. What we do, what we bind, will be what was bound in heaven. So the church would practice a superior form of shunning according to a superior statute. And now we see that they also will make superior supplications. Look at verse 19. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. Until I understood the nature of the synagogue community and the significance of binding and loosing, this seemed disjointed. seemed odd to me. Okay, we've got church discipline, and then... A promise of binding and loosing. Whatever you bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. And then he switches gears and turns to answer any prayer that you ever pray. Doesn't that seem odd? Like, okay, usually there's a logical flow of thought in the scriptures, and this just seems like you're in the Proverbs or something. It's one, you know, something just one rule next to the next, or one disjointed concept next to the next. But it's not disjointed at all. The synagogue prayed powerless ritualistic prayers for the coming of the kingdom. The synagogue community didn't only bind and loose consciences to create the culture that would lead to the realization of the messianic kingdom. They also prayed to that end too. Three times per day, every day. It was like clockwork. They had to pray these three times. They'd stop wherever they were and they would pray these prayers three times a day. And twice a week, every week, they mourned with fasting over the fact that they were still under Roman rule. Like the book, they look back to the book of Lamentations when, when, when Israel had been destroyed, Jerusalem had been destroyed, and they were lamenting, and God brought them out of captivity. We need to lament too, so they had it like clockwork. We're going to pray three times a day, we're going to, we're going to fast twice a week, and God's going to see us binding and loosing and, and, and obeying the law. He's going to hear our prayers, He's going to see our pious fasting, and He's going to respond by giving us the kingdom that we're asking for. They prayed that God would see their adherence to the law and overthrow their enemies. But the Sermon on the Mount, right after He corrected their faulty binding and loosing, where does He go in, in chapter 6? Do you remember this? Same flow of thought. Jesus turned his attention to their prayers and their fasting. In Matthew 6, 5, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, the pretenders, the mask wearers. Don't be like them. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen in, of men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. They're not going to see the kingdom realized through their efforts. They're praying for it, but they're binding and loosing wrongly and they're a bunch of hypocrites. 
They're not really seeking the will of God. They don't even really want the kingdom of God. And in verse 16, he calls out their fasting. Whenever you fast, don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they'll be noticed by men that they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. These leaders of the synagogues, the scribes and Pharisees, were hypocrites, pretenders. Literally, the word means mask wearers. They loved being called teacher and rabbi. They loved the prominent seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They pretended that they truly cared about righteousness. They prayed their public prayers in, in the synagogue for the restoration of Israel. They pretended to be deeply grieved over the Roman subjugation of the people of God. But the truth was, it was all a show. They didn't even really desire that for which they prayed. They were actually quite happy with their lives as they were. They just wanted to have the esteem and respect of men. Their hypocrisy was blatantly evident by the fact that Jesus was working greater miracles and more miracles than all the prophets who had ever come before Him combined and they still wouldn't accept His claim that He was the Messiah. Wouldn't even entertain the idea. Why? Well, He's disagreeing with our tradition of the elders and it's taking away our respect that we're getting from men. They didn't want the establishment of the kingdom. They wanted the respect of men. They were hypocrites, and their prayers would never be answered. It was obvious that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't want a Messiah any more than they wanted the blessings of the kingdom. But the church, it will pray effectual prayers for the kingdom. We'll bind what was bound in heaven, we'll loose what is loosed in heaven, and then we will pray. Again, I say to you, verse 9, Furthermore, on top of that, not only will we bind what was bound in heaven and loose what was loose in heaven, but it's an escalator. Yes, what you've just heard, namely that you'll bind on earth what was bound in heaven, you'll loose on earth what was loosed in heaven. Yeah, that's great news, but the news is greater still. If any two of you agree on earth about anything they may ask, it shall be done to them by my fathers in heaven. And that takes us back to the Sermon on the Mount, where it went. He tells them that the hypocrites in the synagogue won't get what they're asking for, but what does he tell the people of God, the true kingdom citizens. But you, when you pray, in contrast to the hypocrites in the synagogue, how they pray, who have their reward already, you go into your inner room, you close the door, and you pray to your Father who is in secret. He's really your Father. You're kingdom citizens. You're His little ones. And your Father who sees what is done in secret, He will reward you. You'll get that for what you're praying. And what are they to pray for? Verse 9. And when you pray, pray in this way, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. What? Thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Let your kingdom finally be realized by letting the promises, the blessed promises of the law be spread in the culture through the ministry of the church. Guys, we're going to get it. We win down here. Write it down. We win down here. That don't Light your fire, your wood's wet. The leaders of the synagogue, the scribes and the Pharisees, were hypocrites. But these kingdom citizens, they're not. Notice the identical language, verse 18, 19. Our Father who art in heaven, verse 6, 9 at the beginning. Our Father who art in heaven. Verse 18, 18, about binding and loosing. Whatever you bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. Verse 6, 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is clearly referring them back to what He told them in the Sermon on the Mount where He announces the arrival of the kingdom of God in His ministries. Clearly calling them back to that, isn't He? Where the Jewish synagogue 
would, fa- would fail to bind and loose, the church would succeed. Where the synagogue prays for the kingdom to come, but they never see it, the church will ask for it and it will be established. This text isn't giving us a blank check to pray amiss and ask for anything we want. The Bible tells us you, pray, you, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you might consume it upon your own lust. It's not telling us. Just two of you get together and agree that you want a new car and voila, you're going to get it. That's not what it's saying here. God is not your genie in a bottle. Jesus is saying you, the church, can ask whatever you want. And what does the church want? The church wants what the synagogue wanted. What the synagogue said it wanted. It wants the establishment of the kingdom. It prays for what Jesus told them to pray for. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you'll get that with all of its blessings. Look with me now to 6.33. And we're going to read all the way through 7.11. We're just going to read it with very little comment, comment if I can restrain myself. And I make no promises. In 6.33, Seek you first the kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things. What all these things? I didn't want to read it all, but if you look back, food, clothing, necessities, all these other things will be added unto you. What should we be asking for? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. Right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Seek you first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these necessities. Don't even worry about them. You're going to get them. That comes with the kingdom and His righteousness. Don't even worry about that though. The church should be seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And then what does it go to? Binding and loosing. Do not judge that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by what standards you measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you behold the speck that is in your brother's eye, and not notice the beam that is in your own eye? Or can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, a log is in your own. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, so that you'll see clearly that you will bind on earth what was bound in heaven, and loose on earth what was loosed in heaven. You'll see clearly to help your brother with his speck. Do not give that which is holy to the dogs, nor throw your pearls before the swine, or they'll trample, trample them under feet. So there you've got the ministry of the keys, recognizing who's, who's dogs and swine and who's not. And then verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. What's the it in verse 7? In 7-7. Seven, seven. Ask and it. Well, obviously, the, the last thing that was mentioned in 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness... And all these things will be have. So ask and it, that kingdom referred to in 633, will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. The Father will give us what we ask for. It's the same exact thing. We see the same thing that was promised in the Sermon on the Mount reiterated here in this section in church discipline. That as we exercise the ministry of the keys... Bringing in who should be in and putting out who should be out. Creating the culture as we bind and loose according to principles of righteousness. As we ask for the kingdom to actually be realized. We can rest assured that we're God's people. We're His little ones and He will hear our cry and give us the kingdom. Now lastly, we turn to the church as a superior synagogue. If you notice, I put where two or three synagogue together in His name. Well, you know, you know the famous verse. 
For where two or three are gathered together in His name, there I am in the midst of Him. Yeah, everybody reads this and you think of how disjointed it would be if you don't have this paradigm, right? So, church discipline, binding and loosing, God will answer all your prayers, and if you play the guitar around a fire with two or three of your buddies, you'll get the warm fuzzies because Jesus will be with you. I mean, obviously, that's the flow, right? No, no, no. No, that's not what it's saying. Where two or three of you have gathered, the word here is synagogue. Where you synagogue together. Where the community of faith, where the church gathers together in His name, not in... See, the, the, the synagogue didn't meet in the name of any Messiah, did they? They met trying to bind and lose some principles of righteousness, hoping that God would send a nameless, faceless Messiah. But we... Who do men say that I am, Peter? You're the Christ. The, the Messiah's already came. We're going to gather in your name. We're going to be the community of faith rallying around the already sent Messiah. Where two or three of us gather together in the already sent Messiah's name, exercising the ministry of the keys in the name of Christ Jesus, binding and loosing truly on principles of righteousness because we have the Holy Spirit to guide us, asking for the arrival of the kingdom, where we gather together in His name, where even just two or three of us, in the synagogue, you had to have ten men. See, he's also saying, my, my, I don't have to have a quorum of ten men to constitute my synagogue. Where two or three of you, you know, you, you don't have numbers. Hey, just eight people on the ark, and look what we got now. We don't have numbers. We don't care about numbers. Where two or three of you, if you're a true church, and there's a small true church, if you're really gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of you. I'm not going to come in response to what you've created. I've already came. You gather in my name and I will execute on your behalf. Guys, we've got Jesus with us. We're a superior synagogue. So the Jewish synagogue believed that God would send the Messiah if they created the culture. We've seen the blatant problems with this old covenant assembly. They thought that they would usher in the kingdom through their own efforts. They thought that they would rightly explain the law of God, that they would bind and loose perfectly, that they would pray and fast, and that God would respond to their righteousness and send the Messiah to conquer their enemies and honor them with prominent positions in the kingdom. That's not the community that God intended to create. Jesus is the hero of our story. Jesus says that the church will create the culture because He sent His Messiah. See the difference? He ain't sending the Messiah because people created a culture. He sent the Messiah so that the indwelled church with the Spirit of God would be able to change the world by creating the culture. Have we given up on that task? Well, we just want to be a faithful presence. I don't want to be a faithful presence. I want Jesus to own this place because He does. I want to see His name made famous. I want to see Him go forth conquering and to conquer and the nations to be subjugated under His name. I want Him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to have all of His enemies underneath His feet. Because that's what he told me he was going to do. And how do we do that? By exercising the ministry of the keys. By actually binding and loosing within the church. By getting together as we're seeking that and praying together, asking God, established with expectant hearts that He will do what He told us He would do. That we would gather, that we would synagogue together in His name as the church. Doing the functions of the church with the expectation of the spread of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. As we obey, that'll happen. As we obey Jesus in the administration of the keys of the kingdom, 
as we go to our sinning brothers in humility and show them their fault in private, as we obediently continue to pursue if they don't listen, taking one or two more with us. And if they refuse to listen, we obediently tell it to the whole church. And if they, if we, if they don't listen then, that we obey Jesus in letting them be to us as Gentiles and tax collectors. If we make our sanctions severe... You know, why do we have a powerless church? Because our sanctions, we don't discipline. It's just like your kids, why they don't obey? Because you don't spank them hard enough. Our sanctions aren't severe. We're not exercising the ministry of the keys in a way that's actually honoring to God. We take sin lightly. We don't even try often to bind, to bind and loose. you got Andy Stanley saying, you know, people, they draw lines while Jesus draws circles. No, Jesus draws lines in the sand and He says, Obey, submit to me. We're His bond servants, like Jake told us. We're his slaves. And we obey Him. And as we bind and loose according to true principles of righteousness and pray for the kingdom, He will do valiantly. Look at the promises when we obey. Whatever we bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. If any two of us agree on earth about anything that we may ask, it will be done for us by our Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of Him. If we desire to see the gates of hell sieged, the kingdom blessings unlocked, because God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, we dare not neglect the duty of church discipline. It is the key to the kingdom. That's the key. And we buried it. We threw it away. The synagogue required ten learned men, like I said. We do it with just two or three. And Jesus is on our side. And tell me this doesn't remind you of how this book ends in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. For lo, I am with you always. Where two or three are gathered together in His name, there He will be in the midst. Lo, I am with you always. The church, He's with the church. Isn't it ironic that people use this verse to discredit the church? I don't need the church. I don't like the institutional church. Where two or three are gathered together in His name, there I'll be in the midst of Him. Guys, that verse is talking about the institutional church. It's talking about synagoguing together with the church and doing church discipline where there's actual membership and a structure of authority there. And we've turned it on its head. Is there any wonder that we stopped creating culture? That it stopped making an impact on the world around us because it became me and my personal relationship with Jesus. As we are the church for whom Christ died. And we rejoice in that. The old covenant has passed away. The temple passed away with that old covenant community. The synagogue's gone, the temple's gone. We understand why the synagogue's gone because it was replaced with the church. But what about the temple? Guys, that's where our hope is. We don't need a temple because there's no more sacrifices. How short have we came? Why can there be forgiveness for all of us where we come short? Why? Because there was a once and for all sacrifice made that Jesus Christ gave His life as the Lamb of God and He died for everywhere we've come short. We come back to that and there's forgiveness and there's pardon there that He as the great high priest offered Himself as the perfect sacrifice and He's now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We have forgiveness, we have pardon, and we have power. Let's rejoice in that reality. Let's rejoice in our forgiveness and in the promise of God that we will go out and a mighty fortress is our God and we will win. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we rejoice in these truths. Lord, we rejoice in these promises. Lord, help us 
just do what you said you would do. Lord, help us to do what you've called us to do and then do what you said you'd do. Fill us with your Spirit. Help us, Lord. Help us to exercise the ministry of the keys, to bind and to loose on principles of righteousness. Give us prayerful hearts that desire the kingdom more than anything else. Don't let us be like the hypocrites who say we want it, but we really don't. Let us pursue it with all of our heart and let us know that as we pursue it, as we gather together pursuing your kingdom and your righteousness, that you are in the midst of us working to accomplish it on our behalf. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.